I recently heard a story about a reporter who was interviewing a man who had reached his 100th birthday. The reporter asked, what are you most proud of? Well, said the man, I don't have an enemy in the world. What a beautiful thought. Oh my goodness, that is so inspirational, said the reporter. Yep, said the elderly gentleman. I outlived every last one of them. Is that the way you feel toward your enemies? You try to avoid or ignore them, hoping that you just might outlive or outlast them? Maybe you secretly hope that bad things will happen to them, or perhaps, perhaps you gossip about your enemies, you know, exaggerate the truth a bit, saying things that aren't exactly true. Sometimes we judge the behaviors of others, maybe because their ways are quite different than our ways. And we get so angry at them that we hope God will punish them for their evil ways, even though it's just different. I kind of think that this is how most of the world operates towards enemies. Heck, we go to war with our enemies and we try to gain support among our friends and allies for our way of thinking against those that we call enemy. We want people to side with us, join our team against them. Getting even or retaliation for wrongs done to us, well, that seems to come naturally. I mean, it's so easy to answer hate with hate. Some of you know that I served as a mission volunteer in Nicaragua in Central America in the mid-1980s when there was a raging civil war going on, the Contras versus the Sandinistas. The divisions in that tiny country were so deep that neighbor turned against neighbor, sibling turned against sibling, and large countries like the United States and the Soviet Union were stoking the flames from outside. It was a hard season to be there. And one of the most haunting memories of my time there happened just a few weeks before my year of service ended. There had been an ambush just outside of town and the bodies of several human beings were brought to the health center. It was clear that these men, they had been brutally tortured and murdered. As one of the two people in this small town who owned a camera, I was asked to take pictures and help document these atrocities. Well, I had never before, and I hope never again, to see anything like this. It was absolutely terrifying. And soon people gathered to cry and to hug and to pray, and then they began to talk about the night's defense. It was decided that half of the men would stay in the town to keep watch, and the other half would go out and try to track down the enemy. As the days passed, more skirmishes occurred and more young men fell. I vividly remember watching a 13-year-old boy, a boy whose father had just been killed. The boy was standing in front of the health clinic and there was a mural painted on the wall of the clinic just behind the boy. On the mural was a large, colorful dove with the words written underneath, queremos la paz, we want peace. That's what folks were longing for, an end to this war. 
They wanted an end to their pain and their misery. They wanted to reconcile with their neighbors and their family members because that civil war was devastating to everyone and tearing that tiny country apart. And yet, and yet that day in 1987, there in front of the health center, in front of that beautifully painted peace dove mural, that young man was proclaiming to anyone who would listen that he was going to volunteer. He was going to early enlist in the military as a 13-year-old so he could avenge his father's death. Hatred breeds hatred. The cycle of violence continues, and the desire to get even, it runs deep. Responding to violence done by an enemy with our own violence is just the way we humans were created, right? I mean, it's written into our DNA, isn't it? Because that's how it almost always plays out, from the kickball field to the battlefield. Well, no. Friends, it is not written into our DNA, but it was written into the judicial code of many ancient religions. It's called the Code of Hammurabi, and it's been around for some 2,000 years before Jesus, a really long time. It teaches an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And knowing the human tendency toward retribution, the code was to regulate punishment, and it tried to establish a code of ethics for when a wrong was done, the punishment should fit the crime. So no more than an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, in 2021, we understand how systems like this work. And the people gathered around Jesus that day long ago, they understood it too. So think about it. It is into this setting, in the midst of that human condition, that Jesus speaks these bold and perplexing words. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love these who love them. But love your enemies. Your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High. It's like Jesus is introducing a new code of behavior based not on retaliation and revenge, not on reciprocal morality, but instead on mercy and forgiveness. Now, let me say right out of the gate that I feel the heaviness, the pressure, the weight of Jesus' words every bit as much as you do, you who are listening this morning, this day, as well as those who are listening to Jesus some 2,000 years ago. But I love the idea of a new code to live by, a code based on mercy and forgiveness. Yes, this is the real heart of Jesus' message. It's a high standard It is gospel for the committed. Jesus is preaching an ethic of generosity, an ethic of generosity for Christians living in a hostile world. Jeremy Myers put it this way, It's like Jesus is wanting us to develop an attitude toward other people, whether we are interacting with friends or enemies, Christians or non-Christians, our attitude toward other people should be to love them. And these verses... They give us some instructions on loving those that we would rather hate. Well, this is good news, but 
It is hard news to live out. So hard, we rarely even try. But it's still there. I say to you who are willing to hear, love your enemies. Everything that follows this defines the word love, which is more about actions than emotional connections. To love your enemy is to search within, find it in your heart to put aside any wrongs, to love them as a fellow human being made in God's image and express it in your behaviors. I know this is hard and we will mess up a lot, but it's an attitude shift, a change in one's mindset. Presbyterian pastor John Buchanan said this commandment is not to feel love, but to show love. And the promise is not that it will always transform your enemy into a nice person. That does not seem to be the point. Rather, when you love your enemy, you change. That's what Jesus said. You become more the human being that God created you to be. You become, in fact, a child of God, a maker of the peace of God. Do good. Offer generous acts to those who hate you. Bless. Bless those who curse you. Pray. Pray for those who abuse you. That means ask God to do good to them. Ask God to work through you to show love and grace. Why? Why? Because when you love your enemy, somehow God's amazing grace transforms you and makes you different than you are. Yes, Jesus asks us to love our enemies. And through the years, a paradox has been observed. When you love your enemy, he or she ceases to be an enemy. I really appreciate a lesson from Abraham Lincoln. Apparently, in his second inaugural address, just as the Civil War was ending, Lincoln said, With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle. Now remember, it's at the end of the Civil War and our nation was absolutely torn apart. And a woman asked him, how can you talk to people like that who have hated you so deeply? And Lincoln responded, do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? Okay, but Sally, that might be just fine for Abraham Lincoln, but what about us? This is such hard work. Why even try? Well, besides the fact that Jesus directs us to do so, let me suggest a few things that might happen as we seek to love our enemies and try to live by a code of mercy and forgiveness. First, I believe we will be happier. If we are carrying anger, bitterness, and resentment because of something an enemy has done to us, the anger and resentment do not make the situation better, but they can tear us apart inside. And outwardly, we might do harmful things that we regret. So removing that anger, letting go of it is a positive thing, and it can make us happier overall. Another thing that might happen by loving your enemy is that it could change another person's life. Yes, 
it is very possible that the hatred that you have in your heart for another person is the source of deep grief and pain for them. And in your not-so-Christian moments, you might even feel some delight about that. But continuing to cause hurt to anyone is not a good thing, while helping them feel God's love and forgiveness is a good thing. And finally, a third thing that might happen, hard as it may seem, but you might even make a friend. For indeed, one of the most powerful effects of learning to love one's enemy is that your enemy can possibly become a friend. A new friend in your life instead of an enemy makes an incredible difference. And if that enemy is a family member or even a former friend, reuniting can be extremely powerful, important, and so very healing for everyone involved. Do you remember the Truth and Reconciliation Commission from South Africa? It was set up by the government of national unity to help deal with what had happened under apartheid. Apartheid was a policy of segregation and discrimination that was, well, based on race. And during apartheid, very few people were loving their enemies. There was violence and horrific human human rights abuses on all sides. And this commission was set up to enable South Africans to come to terms with their past and advance the cause of reconciliation. Well, I remember a story of an Afrikaner woman named Joan Van Blerk, who was tied up and held at gun and knife point while her house was being ransacked. Everything of value was taken. Indeed, there was one teenage boy from Soweto. His name was Colin. He was among the robbers and he literally ripped the wedding ring off of her finger. In the weeks that followed, Joan completely cracked. She was scared of being alone, and she felt such hatred towards those men who had come into her home, that especially that one named Colin. She said, as far as I was concerned, Colin was trash. I could easily have killed him. I didn't know that I had so much hatred within me. And then one day, a few years later, out of the blue, there was a knock at her door. A woman from the commission started talking about prisoners, Miss Van Blurk, Joan. She said she didn't want to know anything about prisoners at all until that woman mentioned Colin. The woman told Van Blurk that Colin, this young man who had robbed her in 1997, said that he wouldn't be able to get on with his life unless she forgave him. Something inside of her, maybe the thought of loosening the weight of bitterness and hatred that she'd been carrying around for so long, maybe it wiggled inside of her. Maybe it was the work of the Holy Spirit. But something, something inside of her made her say yes, and she agreed to meet him. So six years after that violent robbery, in front of a packed room at the prison, Colin told everyone, but speaking directly to Joan, he said that he was very sorry for what he had done. She continued, and I told him that I forgave him. And then he gave me a bunch of exquisite roses. And then she told Colin if he was ever in the neighborhood, he should drop by for a cup of tea. 
She continued, To my surprise, he turned up one Saturday afternoon, a few weeks later, to tell me about his studies. She paused. Things are good between us. And now we, Colin and I, we go into prisons to talk about the healing nature of forgiveness and restorative justice. At first, this was all about helping Colin. I didn't think it could possibly help me. But I was wrong. Oh, so wrong. Martin Luther King Jr. said that love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. Jesus calls us to love our enemies. And when you love your enemies, somehow God's amazing grace transforms you and makes you different than you are. Friends, what Colin and those other robbers did to the Van Blurk family was absolutely wrong. We do not want to minimize their brutal actions, but they served their time and they publicly asked for forgiveness and it must be given. Anything else is simply not the way of Jesus. In these days, we find ourselves living in a highly conflicted time. We judge and mistrust each other. Our relationships are fractured and many of us are living in fear. And we hear Jesus asking us, Whom will we love? Whom will you love? Loving our enemies does not mean to surrender to injustice. We must fight injustice. We must struggle for what is right and good and just. But we do not fight hate with hate. We do not meet violence with violence. We meet it with love. Yes, we love our enemies so that there is maybe just a little window open for God to shine light and love and healing into the darkness of fear and prejudice and hate. Will you pray with me? Dear Jesus, you call us into a life that others have told us was easy, but it is not. You challenge us to forgive, to love our enemies and bless those who curse us. We want the easy way but you've given us a hard path that invites us to live with an attitude of love toward others. So today we ask you that you would grant us the peace and endurance to journey with you, to be gentle with ourselves when we stumble, and to try to live by your code of mercy, forgiveness, and love. We pray in your name. Amen.